Florida Governor Ron DeSantis launched his presidential bid in a Twitter town hall meeting last night. We'll give you the highlights of his glitchy, chaotic rollout and size up his chances. Then we'll tackle the nonprofit industrial complex. Has the government relinquished its responsibility and oversight as it's turned over more and more essential functions to these outside groups? And finally, as the first children of the Facebook era become adults, some of them are grappling with the consequences of their parents' social media oversharing. Do kids have a right to digital privacy? Do parents have a responsibility to safeguard their children's images? We'll talk to writer Kate Lindsay, who recently took to the pages of The Atlantic to explore that issue. All of that and more on The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, your boy Ron made his announcement last night. What'd you think? My boy. Interesting. I thought you were <laughs> pro Ron. Didn't you have a Ron hat or something? No, Would that's you... my mom. I don't have a Ron hat. Uh, I have a Biden shirt. I mean, I, I'm not even I'm oh, not even stop. consistent. Stop. No, I literally do. I have one of him double fisting ice cream cones. It's really good. I'll wear it next time. Well, what'd you um, think? Well, as the post said, I just picked up my paper on my doorstep. He's Ronning. <laughs> oh my God. They, I've seen better. But all right. So I know. To, I was laughing as I <laughs> was walking back to my apartment. Let's quickly dispense with the quote unquote optics of this all. So there was a 20 plus minute malfunction on Twitter. So he was announcing on Twitter spaces. Um, yeah. The delay was longer than some campaign speeches. There was dead air, there were hot mic whispers. And then. DeSantis came on with Musk and investor David Sachs, and they basically tried to spin it as positive. Can, are you there? Can you hear us? I think you broke I'm right, here. I know. I think, I think you broke the internet there. We had over half a million people in one Twitter space, and it was growing by like 50,000 a minute. So uh, congrats on, uh, on breaking the internet there. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. You, I mean, try some you know, new things. You're, you're going to... Yes. Uh, it's adventurous, so yes. Um. <laughs> so, uh, Ricky, not exactly the first words you want to hear out of your momentous announcement. The Daily Mail called no. it a disaster. Fox News called it a disaster. Breitbart called it a debacle. Honestly, I expected better from the Post. Uh, honestly, I think Ronning is better than a disaster, but. You know, a campaign spokesperson said that the enthusiasm, quote, literally busted up the Internet. So that's one way to spin it. You'd think that they might have, like, tested out the servers and anticipated. I mean, it ended up having 600,000 listeners, which is a lot, but not like it's not like unbelievable. Like I would have imagined if I were Elon anticipating how many people were going to log on that the servers needed to be ready for 600,000 people. But it wasn't all terrible for DeSantis, he raised a million dollars in an hour for his campaign. Um, and, you know, he definitely is differentiating himself, even though there were hiccups um, as like in the kind of 70, 80 plus presidential campaign as the 44 year old who's announcing on Twitter spaces. That's kind of novel. Yeah, so. but he still would have he would have had way more viewers if he would have done a traditional announcement that was picked up by the networks. And I think that there are a few winners yeah. of this night 
for sure Trump. Trump said, wow, the DeSanctus Twitter launch is a disaster. He was obviously crying about this. He says his whole campaign will be a disaster. Watch, um, you know, Caroline Leavitt, a spokesperson for Trump's PAC, said Ron DeSanctus or DeSantis botched campaign announcements. Another example why he's not ready for the job. And so they're basically taking aim at DeSantis's claims at competency and saying, look, he can't even manage his rollout. Uh, other people in the field, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, took issue with the stage craft of it all. He said, challenge to the GOP field, no pre-written speeches, no teleprompters, no pre-scripted interviews. That'll be good for authenticity, good for America. I promise to abide. So basically what he was saying was, hey, you're claiming this is off the cuff, but it's a bunch of your buddies basically asking you softball questions. Um, Liz Smith, who's the Democratic strategist, uh, took to Twitter to say, you never get a second chance at a first impression. Uh, which is why most presidentials agonize over the most minute details of a launch, the location, the music, the shot, the program, the speech, et cetera. Unfathomable that you blow that once in a campaign free media op for whatever this was. So the reviews weren't great, Ricky. Yeah, I feel like the best way to do this would have been, um, you know, all these, like, I think the Daily Wire is moving over to Twitter and Tucker is moving to Twitter. Like, you could have come up with a way to make this a video-facing sort yeah. of situation and put it on Twitter natively, but also done something that could be picked up by news outlets because, you know, Fox isn't going to be running um, clips of Twitter spaces and, like, various VC guys coughing over each other. But, right. well, you know, it, Trump, was, Trump had this, like, funny little spoof thing that he posted that was kind of good of like Elon and Ron talking over each other while George Soros and Klaus Schwab and Dick Cheney and all of his, um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> all of his invented enemies are um, coughing and wheezing and un unsure how to get on the, the network. So Trump was having a field day. It was a really strange like even once it got started, putting aside that it took 20 minutes, not the end of the world, right? But once it got started, it was just a strange way to announce your presidential campaign. There yeah, were there were huge chunks of time when David Sachs was talking more than anybody else. I'm like, who the hell cares with David? Like, sure, great, all in podcasts. A lot of people listen to that, but that's not what the purpose of this event was. Like it was to mm -hmm. hear from Ron DeSantis. And there were huge swaths of time where it seemed like a conversation between Elon Musk and David Sachs. I'm like, that's not how you run for president. Now, well, let's hear let's hear in DeSantis's own words though what his what his pitch is. Yeah, well, actually, before we America. before we go to his before we go to DeSantis on the substance, which is where I really want to take this because I do think there was a lot of interesting stuff that happened there. I want to just paint the picture about where we are right now in this race, which is the RCP polling average from before this announcement. So right before this announcement was Trump at 56.3 nationally, DeSantis at 19.4, Pence 5.6, Haley 4.3, Ramaswamy 3.6. That's the national polls, right? Now, important to remember, so everybody who, coming into this, Ricky, everybody was saying basically DeSantis is lagging, his campaign is suffering. I do want to pour a little bit of cold water on that take just to remind people what the polls look like in May of 2007, so the equivalent of the same period of time during the presidential race that I worked on, which was the Obama campaign. Back in May of 2007, Hillary Clinton was up 62-23 against Obama, who obviously eventually won the nomination in the presidency. In the GOP field at the same exact time, Giuliani was at 25, Fred Thompson was at 19, 
Romney was at 17 and McCain was at 14. So, and McCain mm. obviously went on to capture that nomination. So it's still really early. And DeSantis yeah. in early states is actually polling pretty well. So the latest New Hampshire poll I saw, which is UNH poll from April, had it 42-22 Trump DeSantis. The latest Iowa poll, which is the first state to go, the American Greatness poll from May 11th had it 42-34. So pretty tight Trump DeSantis in Iowa, which obviously it's a momentum game. It's about surviving and advancing. So DeSantis is very much still in this race. So with mm -hmm. that said, yes, let's go to, like he gave a, I, I guess you can call it his stump speech uh, at the beginning of this when given an opportunity. So let's go to this clip. Well, I am running for president of the United States to lead our great American comeback. Look, we know our country's going in the wrong direction. We see it with our eyes and we feel it in our bones. Our Southern borders collapse, drugs are pouring into the country. Our cities are being hollowed out by spiking crime. The federal government's making it harder for the average family to make ends meet and to attain and maintain a middle-class lifestyle. And our president, well, he lacks vigor, flounders in the face of our nation's challenges, and he takes his cues from the woke mob. I don't think it has to be this way. American decline is not inevitable. It is a choice. And we should choose a new direction, a path that will lead to American revitalization. We must restore sanity to our nation. So, Ricky, you know way more about what resonates with the right than I do. Is this a winning message? I mean, I think it's not all that dissimilar from the Trump message, to be honest. It's, does, it seems like pretty standard Republican fair for the moment. I mean, I think the real question here becomes whether the Republican primary voters are thinking in the short term or the long term, because I think they definitely have a preference leaning towards Trump. But certainly if if you're looking at, at least in my opinion, who's more likely to beat Joe Biden in the general election if they become the nominee, I think DeSantis has a huge advantage over Trump. He's less polarizing, relatively speaking, and I think way more likely to bring independent voters onto his side. So I yeah. think, you know, this, there's nothing too shocking or different about what he's saying here, aside from the fact that he's not Trump. Yeah, what's interesting is I intuitively I'm with you on the DeSantis being, you know, and I, and I know a lot of the Democratic strategists I talk to definitely believe that DeSantis will be a much tougher opponent than Trump, but the polling lately seems to suggest otherwise. Now, it's still way early, but yeah. Trump is polling better than DeSantis against uh, Biden head-to-head -head in some of the latest polls that I've seen. But I find that I don't hard think to it's, believe. It's too early, I think, to really hang your hat on that kind of stuff. But you, you well, raise I also think that I also think the odds that Trump on the campaign trail, if he becomes the nominee, puts his foot in his mouth, carries all the baggage of 2020, carries all the baggage of all of his other crap versus DeSantis doing that is just much lower. Like I think DeSantis is a much more calculated politician and he would be less likely to attract as much negative attention during a, a Biden face off than Trump would. So I, I feel I would feel a lot more confident in him winning than the other way around. Yeah. And you raised an interesting question earlier, which is, well, if if he does sound similar to Trump, he has to distinguish himself, right? So how does he distinguish himself? So as he did the rounds, one of the things he did, interestingly, was he went on Fox News, which is probably where he got more audience than even this Twitter um, this Twitter uh, spaces conversation. And when he talked to Gowdy on Fox News, he started to, he never mentioned either in his Twitter spaces conversation or his media appearances, Trump's name, but he very, he contrasted himself with Trump multiple times. So in one case, he said that there 
there's all this stuff happening at the southern border, and that he promised to build a, quote, full border wall, which is like obviously an implicit rebuke of Trump who didn't finish his wall. Um, he he blasted certain appointments that Trump made, including Jerome Powell at the Fed, Christopher Wray at the FBI. Um he talked about, he was asked about whether, you know, basically Gowdy asked him about Trump saying essentially he may not show up to a bunch of debates. And DeSantis said, quote, nobody's entitled to anything in this world, Trey. You got to earn it. That's exactly what I intend to do. And I think the debates are a big part of the process. So he basically is trying to distinguish himself from Trump in saying like, look, like there's a lot of things that this guy did that I don't like. He doesn't want to say his name yet. He's going to have to eventually go straight at Trump because Trump is not afraid to punch him right in the face. But Ricky, the other thing he's got is he's got an actual state. And I think he's he wants to say, you know, the, the, the big tagline he had and his kind of slogan is the great American comeback, right? But he's also previously said, make America Florida. And he talked a lot about Florida in this Twitter spaces conversation. Let's go to this clip. Uh, we chose facts over fear, education over indoctrination, law and order over rioting and disorder. We held the line when freedom hung in the balance. And we're thriving as a result. Florida is the nation's fastest growing state. We're number one in net in migration, number one in new business formations, recently ranked number one in education. We have a 50-year low crime rate and one of the lowest tax and debt per capita in America. And so, Ricky, I think for a lot of people who don't love Florida, it's hard to wrap their head around this sales pitch of Florida. But he did have Jay Bhattacharya on to talk about the school closures issues. Like, what's the story of Florida as you see it? Because I think, like, it's partially a libertarian story. It started as one, and it's gotten less and less so, unfortunately, as time has gone on. Um, and I think he's delved a little more into the culture war stuff. But in the pandemic, I think he really differentiated himself in terms of keeping things relatively open, deferring to individual choice over mandates, and um, definitely got a lot of positive attention from the right and also didn't have, um, I think... I, I don't want to misquote the statistic, but there wasn't like an extreme excess um, mortality that other states um, or other states had a similar one despite locking down more stringently and harming their economy more. And so I think he got a lot of positive attention for that. And then for some people yeah, on the can right, I, can I just layer in one thing about what you just said? Yeah. I had a debate with Chris Stewart on the Citizen Stewart podcast about this the other day. And especially if you control for the age of the population, Florida was not the catastrophe that people were predicting. No. Uh, and, and they were walking around with like Grim Reaper and calling like really demonizing him for that um, in a way that I think didn't pan out in the end. But I think he's also made since then and he, since he's gotten national attention, he's delved further into culture wars stuff that I think um, he's shooting himself in the foot with in terms of independent voters. Mm -hmm. But maybe that's a strategy to tack towards the Republican primary base. Um, I think that'll alienate people in the in the longer term in the general election. But yeah, for you know. sure. Yeah, I, you know, you got to win the pennant before you win the series, as they say. So he's got to win the nomination first. And so although he's mentioning Biden, he's not running against Biden. He's running against Trump, but he's trying to position yeah. himself as the person most effective to beat Trump. One thing I do want to fact check that he said, I was trying to figure out, he said that Florida was number one in education. I looked it up. You know, the marker that people tend to use to compare states to each other is the NAEP data and the National Report Card. And this is where Florida stacked up according to the 2022 data. And the only data I could find is grade four and eight. So grade four math, Florida's ranked fifth. Uh, grade four reading, Florida's ranked fourth. Grade eight math, 
33rd, grade eight, reading 22nd. So basically middling in, in grade eight, uh, doing pretty well in grade four, but in no cases, number one, I, I'd be curious if you're a listener and you know what data he was pulling from. I couldn't find any um, sources to say what he was exactly talking about there, but um, he seemed, that, that at least seemed to be an exaggeration to me, at least the education front. But I don't think anybody really is going to care one way or another about whether it's exactly number one or not. You know, I would say I didn't find most of the questioning and back and forth to be that interesting or groundbreaking on this front. But I want to just shout out, I'm going to shout out John Stossel twice on this episode. But first, he had um, just a recent interview uh, with Reason Magazine that he called the two faces of Ron DeSantis. And I think if anyone's looking for like praise where it's due and criticism where it's due and in an interview with DeSantis that just I think is honest and level-headed, which is unique. John Stossel did a great job. I'd highly recommend that because it, for me as a libertarian, answered all the questions that I was, that were kind of irking me at least. Well, you know, there was one thing about this interview that really made me chuckle and I wasn't the only one, which is, you know, there was DeSantis making his case and then there's a, uh, Elon Musk making his case for like, hey, this is like a different way to tell stories, et cetera. And there was this rather puzzling moment where Elon Musk, and they reinforce over and over again saying like, this is different from the elite media, like curating the narrative, et cetera. Let's go to a clip about how they were positioning this interview. And it's also like the, it's not just whether the media reports something uh, and an article is, is true or not, uh, even more powerful is deciding what the narrative is. And totally. so, uh, you know, it's, so it's just like if there's only so much you can actually fit in a newspaper um, or a magazine, and what, and there's only one thing you can really put on on the cover of a magazine. So uh, that that whoever's deciding that is is deciding to not talk about other things. Um, whereas with a public digital town square like we have here, it's possible for the public to choose the narrative. It empowers the people instead of uh, a very tiny elite cabal. Um, which I don't recognize the irony of me using that <laughs> phrase, um, but but nonetheless, it's it's true. At the point where he's talking about this, I think it's something like twenty to thirty minutes into an hour long conversation, at which it's Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, David Sachs, a venture capitalist, and Jay Bhattacharya, a Stanford professor who was picked for his co reviews, whether you agree them or not, having a conversation with Ron DeSantis. And then as time went on, they allowed other people into the conversation. And I'll quote Isaac Saul, our friend over at Tangle, who said, "Quote: Elon said that a diverse set of people would get to ask DeSantis." questions. So far, it's one of his donors hosting, Republican representative and DeSantis friend Thomas Massey, a Blaze TV host, and Chris Rufo. <laughs> and so the idea that they're not curating this conversation to me is so silly. Like the sense of just like, you know, thumbing their nose at the elite media who curate the conversation. I'm like, please, you're curating this conversation as much as anybody else. This isn't some kind of egalitarian conversation. Some people may like it or not, but like this idea that they're sanctimonious about their position here, just it's, it's just absolutely absurd. Yeah. I mean, in their defense, I do think that they're they are the outliers in the in the global elite and probably in a smaller cabal, but they're in their own little mini cabal. It's true. But, you know, they're 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 going against the green, I think, what, of the what general. Outlier? Ricky, what outliers? They're, they're rich people who want lower taxes and less regulation. They may be like, look, we could quibble whether that's right or not. But that's like that. I don't know how outlier I, they are. You know, the idea that they're right wing rich people dis- out there. I mean, know. I agree in terms of the media landscape that this is that this is an outlier. Yeah. Well, okay. So, okay, let's 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 give some other 
shine to other things happening in this race. Because I do think that Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump are they not the only two people in this race mm-hmm. uh, for the GOP nomination. And so I think it's a good time to take a step back and just say, what's like one or two underrated stories out there, Ricky, that you think we should be paying attention to in this GOP primary? Well, one thing that is frustrating to me is the the lack of debates on the Democratic side. Um, Marianne Williamson and RFK Jr. both entered um, or put their their hats in the ring and the DNC just decided, nope, no debates. Biden's not going to get out on the stage. And, you know, those are not the most serious pair of candidates for him to have to face down. So it, it could be an opportunity for a strong president to come out and really uh, shine. But Marianne Williamson called it unde- undemocratic and unfortunate. And I completely agree with her on that. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'll, my underrated storyline here is Tim Scott who I think actually had a a rather professional and interesting rollout. And I think like mm-hmm. the name of the game I is, agree. can you distinguish yourself from Trump? And I think unquestionably what I was hearing from Tim Scott was him distinguishing himself. And I think at some point mm-hmm. we'll probably cover his campaign in more detail. And I think if there, if I were, if I were betting on a, like, I think Trump, if you're betting or you bet on Trump to win the nomination, just cause just the, like the structure of the way the race is going. But I think if I were to pick an underdog who I wouldn't be shocked if he pulled it off, it would be Scott because he has shown mm-hmm. himself to, you want to tell a story, right? What's the story you mm-hmm. want to tell about America? And he's got a story to tell. I think the question is who's going to have the courage to actually utter Trump's name and say for real and in specific ways, what they would do differently as opposed to dancing around it. Yeah. And so we'll, we'll find out like, and you talk about debates, like we'll find out if Trump decides that he wants to do debates. Obviously it was a, it was a conversation point with Gowdy and DeSantis. Nobody really knows yet, but if they do get on that debate stage together, you'll find a lot about like whether people are running for Trump's vice presidential nomination or whether they're running to beat him. Uh, and that'll become quite apparent on the first night of those debates. Well, Ricky, Noah Smith, great substack, the No Opinion substack. They had this this amazing piece about the nonprofit industrial complex, uh, something that we had an episode. We, we did an episode of Regressives with Majora Carter, which we'll link to in the sh- show notes, where she basically talked about how in the Bronx, they have all these nonprofits who have cozy relationships with politicians. And you know it's not about how effective they are but about whether they, you know, cozy up to the right powerful people or not. And Noah Smith, Ricky, puts some data behind this, essentially showing that we're spending a ton of money, government money on nonprofit organizations, and they're not always doing effective work. He uses an example that's was kind of amusing to me. Um, in Los Angeles, they, at bus stops, were trying to make like a lamppost shading sort of hybrid situation where there'd be light at night and shade during the day. Um, and they partnered up with the nonprofit Konkui Design Initiative and spent $200,000 to construct this really weird looking thing that apparently doesn't even really shade people during the day um, as part of their gender equity action plan at a bus stop. And so this was kind of the 
illustrative example of a nonprofit teaming up with a government to spend exorbitant amounts of money to do something bizarre and weirdly political for some reason, like your bus stop shade lamp thing needs to have to do with gender equity. I'm not sure why. Um, But it was a larger point to illustrate this, like outsourcing what he says are essential government functions to nonprofit organizations. Um, And he points out that a third of nonprofit funding right now comes from government grants. And um, that's 13 percent of all government spending at the moment. And that compares to eight. So just to underscore what you're saying, 13% of all government spending goes to nonprofits compared to 18.4% of government spending spent on actual government workers. Yeah. So it's pretty neck and neck, like actual people working for the government versus money being shelled out to nonprofits. And in certain cases, look, like there's some of this stuff that this nonprofit spending without question, people can agree with or not. Uh, I think what he's pointing to is that there's just not a lot of oversight of some of the spending. And he points to the mid-1970s as to when this started to change. So until about the mid-1970s, U.S. government spending um, largely grew in tandem with the size of its workforce. But around that time, the mid-1970s on, a gap opened up between the size of the workforce and the amount of money spent on nonprofits, where essentially nonprofit spending grew exorbitantly from that period of time. It rose by 70% in inflation-adjusted terms from 1998 to 2016, um, while the workforce remain relatively stagnant. And what that means essentially is like, yes, and there's like other ways that you could spend money like, you know, cash payments for, you know, um, entitlement spending, et cetera. But What's essentially happening is we're outsourcing critical functions like building shade at bus stops. And Mm -hmm. he has some really crazy examples here. Like in San Francisco, for example, uh, he goes like through, it's not just the federal government, local governments are terrible at this. Uh, In 2023, San Francisco paid $25 million to nonprofits that already had their nonprofit status suspended by the state. insane. Yeah, 25 million. Um, New York's comptroller uh, observed that the city keeps spending uh, more and more money on homelessness to nonprofit providers, uh, only to see the unsheltered homeless population increase year over year. And he put those nonprofits on a watch list. I know from personal experience that the city council members, some of whom I've worked with before, get a certain slush fund that they get to spend on nonprofit organizations in their districts with almost no oversight in the city of New York. This is a problem around the country right now. The thing to me, though, is this isn't really a case against privatization. It's just a case against these these entities that are becoming pseudo-governmental entities and I'm sure are have really intertangled with people in the government. And this has always been a problem with government contracts going to friends of, of government employees or people that they feel can, I guess, further their political prospects and re-election prospects. But, you know, I don't think the case is really strongly made that the government just doing it on its own is necessarily always a better thing because you end up in the same sort of lack of oversight, lack of market pressure, lack of accountability on how taxpayer dollars are spent. And again, John Stossel, he's making a lot of appearances today, but I thought this was funny. He went to this New York City park and um, asked people in it how much they thought this teeny tiny little bathroom that has like two sinks in it cost. Do the people who use this park know what taxpayers paid for their bathroom? What should something like this cost? Um, a couple thousand. 70,000? Approximately 100,000, maybe. maybe They spent $2 million. For this? Unbelievable. Wow. Wow. You could buy a nice house here for 
$2 million. Uh, price, yeah. We could buy a big house here. <laughs> so, Ricky, I actually interviewed Brian Rosenthal from the New York Times uh, last year about this as it relates to the subways. And we were joking about how, because he talked about how, why is it New York the most expensive place by a long shot to build subways? And we were, he was talking about like one staircase. I forget how much it costs, but we were joking, like, would, would they build it in gold? Uh, so, like, yeah. obviously, things cost so much money, regardless of whether nonprofits are involved or not. This is just a symptom of a larger problem of lack of oversight of spending. Well, and, and nonprofits just become an arm of the government. Like, this is this, these are the same issues. They, they, I mean, even if you don't outsource, outsource to a nonprofit, you still have these issues. And not only does this cost $2 million to put up this little teeny tiny bathroom shack that's not all that great, it also took forever to actually complete it in this park because there's when when no actual human being is like paying the check and it's just the taxpayer dollars which none of us really have any any right or oversight over then this sort of thing happens and Stossel pulls a really good um, comparison, in my opinion, to Bryant Park, which I would say is probably one of the nicest maintained parks in New York City. Um, Certainly has the best public bathroom of any park by a long shot. And it's privately run entirely. And their bathroom, which is like, there's lines out the door because it's so nice and people will purposefully go there if they need to use a restroom uh, in Midtown, that costs $271,000 for them to build, which is about 10% of what the government did. So, you know, it's not, I'm not just, I'm not saying privatize literally everything, but that's a pretty good example of how a genuine private entity that is, you know, somebody is paying the bill, somebody is making sure the contractors are actually doing stuff and finishing it on time, and nobody's getting a, a friendly check cut from the, the taxpayer. Like that, that's just a way more efficient way to do some government services. Yeah. What's interesting is Noah Smith, he's, he, he's not for privatization. He basically talks about how, you know, Reagan's point about I'm from the government. Um, and I'm here to help is like, I forget what Reagan said. It's like the, the, the worst the words you never want to yeah. hear or whatever. And he was basically like, you actually do want to hear that somebody's actually from the government when you're faced with these choices. So Noah Smith definitely- I don't. He does. Yeah. So I just want to represent his view. And But when he talks about the, the nonprofit, the issues with nonprofits in particular and how they interact with government, um, he talks about a couple of things. One is that nonprofits have an incentive to spend all the money they take in. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is why, for instance, they may fly to Europe to look at that bus stop as opposed to just looking at Google Images. Um, now, that's an, also an issue with private sector, too. Like, they get contracts, too, that also, like, entitle them to whatever money they save. But they're more competitive uh, in, in between one another, I think, when they compete for government contracts rather than a nonprofit. Sometimes. I mean, and this actually gets to the second thing that that Noah Smith is pointing out, which is that the bidding process is flawed. And part of this, the, the symptom, the very problem of, like, lack of investment in effective bureaucrats means that we don't have good people to assess these contracts, whether they're nonprofit or for-profit, according to Smith's argument. Uh, and then the final piece is it's just, it just adds another layer to government. Um, yeah, and so I agree. It, it's, it doesn't take government out of the process. It's just another layer within it. And so this is the problem here. And he uses the example of uh, San Francisco's Tenants and Owners Development Corporation, or TODCO. Uh, and I'm going to read this um, from Noah Smith. He says, this is an organization that's supposed to provide subsidized housing for low-income San Francisco residents. But as a recent article in the San Francisco Standard showed, more and more of its money is being spent on uh, 
not on housing, but on salaries for the people who work for the nonprofit and political campaigns on behalf of elected officials who give mm-hmm. Todd Coe City money. And then he quotes this San Francisco Standard article. It says, quote, annual revenue for Todd Coe's main nonprofit entity has more than doubled over the last decade while it has steadily reduced the share of revenue it spends on its residents who are low-income and disabled seniors and formerly homeless people. Meanwhile, the nonprofit is splurged on lobbying, political campaigns, salaries for executives, and grants to other political groups, end quote. So he talks about how this is a problem of what he calls clientelism. So basically, like politicians greasing the skids for specific individuals and organizations who then turn around and help those politicians get elected again. I think this is a huge problem, but I I mean, I the alternative and the only viable alternative if we want to not have the government building $2 million bathrooms is to get private contractors to compete, which I think, you know, we're looking at a third of nonprofit funding coming from from government grants. And I'm sure that there are some nonprofits where it's much larger than a third of their individual intake. And like without without government dollars pumping them up, they wouldn't exist. They would just wilt. Whereas at least private contractors um, in a in a perfect world would compete against each other to gain a government grant or get funding to do something and be chosen to to you know, build a bus stop, shade, whatever, um, and also they're exposed to the free market. Whereas these, like these nonprofits, are essentially just becoming government entities. Like there's, it. I don't think there's a way around it. But I just don't know that I agree with the solution that the government needs to reusurp those things because essentially, I think they just end up going down the same rabbit holes. Yeah, it, it's. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I, for many years, ran a nonprofit that received government dollars, which was Republic Schools, which is a nonprofit charter school organization. And I think it's instructive how we treat nonprofit charter schools in this country, which is you have to go to an authorizing body, which is usually really rigorous, and you get either five to 10-year contracts. Your money is directly tied to the amount of kids that you serve. So like, as opposed to like what's going on with Toddco in, in California, where they couldn't get more and more revenue and service fewer and fewer people, that's impossible with charter schools where you're given a per people amount of funding. That's often less uh, than Cato Institute looked at this, less than the government spends directly per student. So usually it's mm-hmm. more efficient. And you have to submit, uh, at least in Tennessee we did, you have to submit audits to the state and the city that use the same accounting that the government uses. Uh, and so, like, there's so many checks within the system. And yeah. I actually think that was a very effective way to deliver services for kids. Now, uh, the problem is a lot of these programs, like when you have kids in buildings and then you have standardized testing, for example, at the end of the year, by the way. So if we don't perform really well on those tests, they shut us down, right? Like the problem is most areas where the nonprofits are interacting with government don't have all those mechanisms in place. The rigorous authorizing process, the five to 10 year renewals, the testing with objective data at the end of it, the audited financial statements that use government accounting, right? Like, so there's like the, the problem is you just don't have all those checks within the system. I think if they did, this would look a lot better. Well, Ricky, I had a chance to sit down and talk to Kate Lindsay, who's a former editor at The Atlantic, who now writes a a letter called Embedded, and she took to the pages of The Atlantic to talk about this phenomenon of kids who are now becoming adults, who came of age during the social media era and have a lot to say about how their parents portrayed them on social media. Let's go to this interview. All right, Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. 
So Kate, um, I'm an older millennial, so mm -hmm. I was able to basically experience the growth of social media as an adult. You know, mm -hmm. you talk about how Facebook basically comes on the scene in 2006. At that point, I was already in college. So mm. I had full control over my digital profile. Now I was still young and stupid and probably posted <laughs> some stuff I shouldn't have. But you write about how there's a whole group of kids who their parents made all those choices for them, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so, and how, like, when you're thinking about kids, you, you talk about the, how some of them are now basically entering the age that I was in college. They're basically entering yeah, the workforce, yeah. entering college. And what kind of stuff are they discovering or grappling with right now? So I think um, one of the things that first had me thinking about this story was seeing late, late teens, college-aged kids kind of joking or lamenting the fact that, you know, that's kind of when you start job hunting or, you know, you're aware that schools might be Googling you and they're like deciding to, you know, whether or not to accept your application. And they're noticing that, oh, when you Google my name, there's, you know, maybe this picture of me graduating and then this picture of me in the bathtub. Um, and it's, it's one of those things where when the parent was posting it, however many years ago, um, we had, no, they had no conception of how permanent it was going to be. Um, because posting baby photos and taking baby photos is very normal. Um, but this is the first time it's been happening on like a digital scale in a place like Facebook that is still around um, and never forgets. <laughs> <laughs> and what kind of stuff are we talking about here? So, you know, if you're, if you're 18, 19 year old, uh, what's, what's the kind of stuff that's really making these, you know, now basically young adults uncomfortable about their digital profiles? Well, I think it's like, it's kind of any photos. Like I have photos taken of me as a kid where I'm, you know, just waddling around in a diaper. Or I think like the first video taken of me as a kid, I'm like throwing food and refusing to eat it. Like all standard kind of like children's stuff. Um, but, you know, things like potty training milestones. Um, sometimes even parents will post about like a child's first period. Um, just oh intimate details about that are being shared from a parenting perspective, but now that the kid has assumed adulthood, um, there, you know, there's obviously people can be aware that this was them as a child, but it is sort of associated with them more in a more timeless way because it's available at any given moment. Whereas like my, my pictures of me, like being potty trained are in a book somewhere in an right. attic and no one's looking at it. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's essentially your choice at this point, whether you want right. to ever post about that kind of stuff. And you, you write about this, this young girl, uh, or now is a young woman named Kami mm -hmm. Barrett, whose mom posted bath photos, her mm -hmm. MRSA diagnosis, the fact that she was adopted, mm -hmm. the time a drunk driver hit the car she was riding in. And this is all on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And- mm -hmm it kind of set Barrett on a trajectory to try to do something about this. Barrett's mother is interesting because she's not an influencer. She's a parent, just kind of like any other parent out there. And one of the things that was different about Barrett than what we were just talking about is it wasn't when she was job hunting that she started to run into these issues of her childhood photos being posted online. It was kind of in real time because she was in school during a time where her peers were getting access to the internet and during a time when she was going through a lot of health issues. And so, you know, when we were on the phone, she was talking about when her MRSA diagnosis was posted at school, no one would go near her, even though the diagnosis was uh, in the past and she'd already been through treatment. Um, that Just having that information, like even a teacher requested that she sort of sit isolated in the room. Um, and even in general, there's kind of a joke on TikTok uh, 
where people will talk about how, you know, when when they discover that your parents' Facebook are public or when their parents' Facebook are public. And what that's generally understood to mean is like if someone's parents' Facebook are public, you can find a bunch of embarrassing photos of them. And it's kind of a reality of teens these days. And and you write about how basically within America, parents have full control to mm-hmm. post whatever they want about their kids. And they also have full control over any proceeds because some of these accounts mm-hmm. You know, these parenting accounts, you know, you, you write about a, a TikTok of kids opening presents and bursting into tears because it mm-hmm. wasn't what they wanted it to be. And there were 9 million views on this mm-hmm. TikTok. So sometimes these parents are making a lot of money. Sometimes you're using their kids as almost like a um, as props and some kind yes. of like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how-to videos, et cetera. And they're making money. And at least as of today, right? they get all those proceeds. Yeah, there are efforts. And in part, um, Kami Barrett actually testified in sort of in Washington state, there was an attempt to kind of legislate this. There's now something moving in, a little faster in Illinois um, where that would basically liken children who appear in monetized family content to child actors where the parents would be sort of required to take a certain percentage of the money that is earned in any content that features the children a certain percentage amount and it has to get put away for them that the children will then inherit when they turn 18. Um, Another big part of this legislation that people are working on is also when the children are or turn 18, um, they have the right to request the deletion of any past content. But what's sort of, it's a really important step, but that does only apply to sort of influencer parents. And one of the things that this piece really wanted to hone in on is that this is a problem, not just with influencers, but just with sort of everyday people who aren't even thinking about um, long-term 20 years from now, when they're posting a picture of their child, which is a totally understandable thing to want to do, but something we have to kind of rethink now that we know just how long these posts and videos can last. And do you think these these bills will pass? The one in Illinois is picking up steam, but I think the hardest part is that there is, of the people who are being, the lawmakers being presented with this, this is very foreign um, and they're um, not really familiar with content creators in general, let alone the intricacies of these sort of family vloggers. So it does require there to be a bit more literacy with digital culture and influencers in in politics. But it does seem like in Illinois, um, it looks like it actually could be successful and pass in the House. Um, and that would be great because it sets a precedent for other states. Yeah. And I hadn't realized that child actors are entitled to a percentage mm-hmm. of the proceeds. Like, how did that come about? Is it just because of like the 80s? Like, you know, I think there's a sense of the 80s that kids, child actors had like a really raw deal and were mistreated. I don't know the exact um, history of it, but it's called the Coogan Law or the Coogan Account is what it's called. Um, it's it's sort of longstanding, I would say, um, probably around the time period you're talking about. Um, and it's just the closest thing we have to, to liken to it, but there's this element of with vlogging and family accounts that like it's not the children aren't acting; they're just like living their lives right. and kind of being put in front of the camera. And this isn't to say that it's always sinister, um, mm-hmm. but I think when you bring money into something as sort of important and and sensitive as as parenting. Um, and what the the motivations that that can bring about and the priorities that that can bring about um, have the potential to be very detrimental for a child, um, let alone just if you're documenting a child's life every day when they're, you know, six, seven, that's going to be accessible when they're an adult and not just accessible, but like 
easy to bring out and pull up against them whenever, you know, they're trying to sort of, like, it's impossible to distance themselves from that identity because it's always going to be there. Right. Have any states gone so far as to try to ban it outright, like posting about a kid? don't believe so. I know um, in uh, sort of Dutch countries, there's a bit more of a cognizant, like right to be forgotten kind of law, um, things that kind of touch on that. But And that I would apply to everybody, right? Like that right, means that you right, can kind of right. take certain... Yeah, what is the right to be forgotten exactly? It's prominent in the EU and it is like basically the right to have private information about anyone removed from internet searches and directories sort of under certain circumstances. I'm sure there's layers to it. Um, but that's something that, you know, I hasn't... It, that's like an EU thing, but... Um, it's something that isn't the case over here and certainly nothing specific to children. I mean, obviously, one of the things like it's important that all these social media platforms do prohibit uh, down like outright um, rule violating content of children, you know, like nudity and things like that. But um, it, it doesn't have to be outright like illegal content for it to be damaging content. Right. Now, we're taking aside the law for a second. Mm-hmm. I don't think you have kids yet. Do you have kids yet? Okay. So if, you know, let's say you have kids soon and, or if you're a listener to this podcast, people who have really young kids and they haven't made a decision yet Mm -hmm. about how to even portray their kids at all. What do you think people should do here? Like what rules should they follow here? Like moral rules, not legal rules. Right, right. Well, it's definitely an individual decision. I was speaking uh, for the piece. One of the sources I spoke to is Stephen Balcom, who's the CEO of the Family Online Internet Safety Institute. And um, he sort of recommended that going forward, now knowing what we know, it's not that you can't post photos of your children on social media, but you just need to be cognizant of audience and try to really keep it tight. So that could be like, you know, some parents I spoke to just will do close friends um, on Instagram stories and they'll post photos or like they'll do an account that's private um, that's just for posting about children, their children, um, and they can control who sees it. I think where it gets dangerous um, or unpredictable is on places like TikTok, where the kind of the whole point of it is that it doesn't matter how many followers you have, your video can be plucked and put in front of a gigantic audience without you even knowing or trying. And that's where I think, you know, the video you mentioned about the children opening their Christmas presents and crying and it reached 9 million people. I don't think there was any intention on the side of the family for it to have that kind of reach. But um, now that algorithms and discovery are kind of more prioritized in social media, it is far more likely that if you're not locking things down, your content can end end up in front of an audience that you're not expecting. Um, And so keep, it's like, it's not, you know, to each their own. Some people will do the thing where they'll um, upload pictures, but they'll, you know, cover the face, put a little emoji over it. Um, I see things that. like that. Yeah, I see yeah. That. or they they won't do it at all, or they just keep the circle really tight um, in terms of having a private account or close friends. Yeah, I think almost if you're asking the question, you're so mm-hmm. much further ahead than some of these people. Because yeah. I think if 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 you just ask the question, would my kid at 18 years old mm-hmm. or even 14 years old appreciate what I'm posting? Yeah. Then the mm-hmm. the crying over the pres- Christmas presents or bath photos or you know, diagnoses or the fact that a kid is adopted, all these are things that a person with common sense and who's Mm -hmm. acting um, in a way that's in the best interest of the child Mm -hmm. would in more cases than not make the right decision. Right. And I think that the the thing that seems a little bit sad here is the the, the mega accounts that are exploiting Mm -hmm. your kids, you know, where they're Mm -hmm. 
the parents are saying, and I'm sure the parents will justify it, say, oh, I'm going to put this in a college fund or whatever mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for the kid, or it's just funny. They'll laugh. Yeah. But I think if you're ever putting something on the internet that is making people laugh at your kids, you probably should not put that on the internet, you know? Right, right, <laughs> right. Because I mean, you know, when those photos, if we were like pre-internet, when those photos are being taken of like tantrums or whatever, um, the intent was not for anyone else to see it. It was like to preserve that memory because it's like, this is funny or will be funny. Um, but now we've just added a whole public element to it that I think can be hard honestly, just to conceptualize as a parent um, when you're posting about it. And one of the things that I thought, because, you know, these parents who who do post or who even now would still like stand by posting, they're not villains. Um, an author who I interviewed who wrote a book called Momfluenced, her name's Sarah Peterson, she kind of pointed out that parenting, especially in the United States, especially mothering is pretty, it's a, it's thankless work. You don't yeah, get paid, lonely. you don't get, yeah. yeah. And so if you can post a photo of, sort of this tangible proof of your work, which is your child, um, on social media and get that validation where you're not really getting it anywhere else. That's totally understandable. Um, and that's obviously a larger sort of systemic issue with like parenting. Um, but it's as far as sort of the, the risks just can really outweigh that sort of temporary reward. Yeah. And in that case, I, I do think there are ethical issues around even these closed groups, like mm -hmm. even if it's a private account or the close friends account, but that's, that certainly limits the risk. Like, let's say you have like, you know, on Instagram, they have that, like that feature where you can create these little subgroups that you're talking about, like just right. like, like just close friends or whatever. Uh, like, let's say you really want to scratch that itch of validation mm -hmm. and you just put it out to your close friends. Like obviously some of them could, you know, they're not working for the U S federal government, which <laughs> leaks you know, anyway, but the chances of that getting out and being posted on it yeah. is like so low that if you must have your mm -hmm. little support group among parents, keep it small and do it in those closed groups. It, it dramatically limits the damage. It's, it's much different than the 9 million viewers on the TikTok right, video. Right, right. And it's funny because like the biggest thing, like once someone gets over the hurdle or makes the decision themselves to not share their children, kind of what you mentioned is like, that's kind of only now in this world where everyone has phones, like one part of the equation, like anyone else could feel differently about, or just not, not, not even think that there's that boundary in place. Like, you know, they, one of the parents I spoke to, um, it was something that she had to kind of enforce and correct with family and friends because she would, you know, wake up to see that someone in her family or a friend had like posted a photo from a birthday party on their story and they would have to like ask them politely to take it down um, because it's still something that is very normalized. And um, she even mentioned, and this is something that after the piece came out, I actually saw some other people saying this has happened to them where when other people would find out that they're not posting their children on social media, they would kind of assume or suggest that maybe there was something wrong with the child and that's why they weren't sharing <laughs> oh it God. because it's become like so normalized to post your children on social media. And I think especially family, but weirdly, a lot of people feel entitled to that from parents. <laughs> Fascinating interview, Ricky. You grew up in this age, I guess, of social media as is basically mm -hmm. as social media is coming up, you were like four years old in 2006, right? When the period of time so when Facebook's six. coming, six years old. Don't de-age me. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what was your relationship? Did your parents post about you a lot on social media? Um, when I was growing up, not so much. Um, I was fortunate in that way. I, I think like my age group's kind of on the cusp where I feel like 
the bigger issue for us is the stuff that we were just posting about ourselves when we were like 11 and 12. Like if I go back into my Instagram archive, which I had to really do a deep scrub scrub of, I was posting when I was 11 years old. Like who needs that to exist and be out in the ether? I don't think anyone does. And what'd you find? What were you posting when you were 11 years old? Oh, nothing bad. It was like here, like bad, overly saturated photos of my dogs and, and (laughs) random, like sunset pictures that were really poorly taken. I mean, I think kind of all the the quintessential 2011 Instagram stuff. It is funny. The oversaturation thing is funny that you mentioned. What was that all about? Because I was just deleting some of my old posts too. And I was, for some reason, I was putting it on full saturation. Yeah, it was an Instagram filter thing. I don't know. It was just trendy. It was different. It was new. Um, But yeah, I think the biggest thing for my sub generation is what we were putting of ourselves at that point in time. And like, even in the past couple of years, as I was going from, you know, being a a college girl to a working woman, I need to like kind of reorient myself on social media. And I think that's something that a lot of us have had kind of growing pains over um, because you grow up on these platforms and with these platforms. But then these younger cohort of kids that you guys talked about, like I've always winced and cringed and thank God my mom has always been very respectful of my privacy, but like these mommy bloggers and these family vloggers who are basically like using their children as, as a means to make money and sometimes exploiting their very private moments. I've always found that very disturbing and I'm grateful that I don't think there's a lot of kids that are my age necessarily that that happened to, but a little bit younger. Certainly. I mean, the overshares are probably endless. I think it's it's the most difficult area of both ethics and public policy is how do we talk about parents like rights and responsibilities over their own children. Yeah. We've, we've talked about it on all kind of like the Sister Stewart podcast, this podcast, et cetera, in many different con- contexts. Like what should the law require is one question. And I think, you know, what I talked about Kate about is putting the law aside, what's just common sense, good things to do. Right, which mm-hmm. is where a lot of this debate should lie. Right, it's like, hey, we're, we might not prevent you from doing certain things, but it would really do your kids a favor if you laid off of the social media with them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think of like Kylie Jenner, who's probably like the quintessential oversaturated child star sort of person, who for as long as possible, I think, with her first kid, wouldn't post her her face stormy. I think, and like, was actually, I mean, at at some point you know, when you're that famous paparazzi is going to be a thing, but someone who's exploited every personal aspect of their life to put it online and get attention, um, you know, didn't pay that forward with their kid and maybe learn from history a little bit, which I, which is, was kind of surprising to me. And I think there's a, a chance that there's a pendulum swing here where we realize that as more and more kids, like, um, who Kate, profiled here come of age that this is an issue that parents are going to be more wary of it but i think the bigger thing i still think in terms of like meaningful stuff like yeah if there's a photo of you in a bathtub that comes up on google it's kind of embarrassing and it probably will show that it's from your mom and i don't think an employer would discriminate against you but like if there's photos of you with alcohol and you're applying to colleges people have gotten their acceptances rescinded on that sort of basis. So, you know, I think there's, I think what you post yourself is the bigger liability, but these mommy bloggers are like, eesh. There's also like some of these parents are posting about their kids' diseases and disabilities. I mean, like Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, thank you again to Kate Lindsay. Check out her newsletter embedded um, and, you know, just really helpful article. Thanks for, for shining a light on, you know, an issue that's I think only going to grow with time. 
All right. Well, Ricky, um, thanks to Kate Lindsay again for a great interview. Uh, you can check out our newsletter at Embedded. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our episode. Our voicemail is also 321-200-0570. Uh, we will be back on Tuesday with a very special interview with Tim Urban from Wait But Why all about why we're so polarized, what we can do about it, what the media's responsibility is, et cetera. So I think you'll really appreciate that. Thank you very much, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. The Lost Debate is a part of the Branch Network. The show is produced by Mickey Ayub, research support by Ariane Misra, video editing by Julia Waldman, and editing and sound design by Dean Metherell. 